Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. In this episode, I am talking with Dr. Jerry Gans, author of Addressing Challenging Moments in Psychotherapy, Clinical Wisdom for Working with Individuals, Groups, and Couples. This practical and helpful volume details how clinicians can work through a wide range of common challenges. Chapters draw upon clinical wisdom gleaned from the author's 48 years as a practicing psychiatrist to address topics such as using countertransference for therapeutic purposes, resistance, especially when it needs to be the focus of the therapy, and a prioritization of exploration over explanation. Along with theory and clinical observations, Dr. Gans offers a series of clinical pearls, pithy comments that highlight different interventions to a wide range of clinical challenges. These include patient hostility, the abrupt and unilateral termination of therapy, the therapist's loss of compassionate neutrality when treating a couple, and so much more. Many of the clinical pearls prioritize working in the here and now. In addition to offering advice and strategies for therapists, the book also addresses concerns like the matter of fees in private practice, and the virtue of moral courage on the part of the therapist. Written with clarity, heart, and an abundance of clinical wisdom, addressing challenging moments in psychotherapy is essential reading for all clinicians, teachers, and supervisors of psychotherapy. Dr. Jerry Gans is a Distinguished Life Fellow of the American Group Psychotherapy Association and the American Psychiatric Association. Now retired, he previously worked in private practice and as an associate clinical professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. Welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Elizabeth Cronin, a host of the Psychology Channel. And today I am talking with Dr. Jerry Gans, author of Addressing Challenging Moments in Psychotherapy, Clinical Wisdom for Working with Individuals, Groups, and Couples. Thanks for being here today, Jerry. Glad to be here. So we'd like to start out by inviting you to say a few things about yourself and to tell us a little bit about how you came to write this book. Let's see. I um, retired in June of 2019 after 48 years of clinical practice where I listened to about 80,000 hours of patient stories. Um, And over my career, I supervised about 90 clinicians and they told me that that they thought I had a way of putting things succinctly uh, that they found helpful personally and professionally. 
So about five years ago, I sat down and made a list of 30 of these pithy comments, sort of like aphorisms, but I didn't have the energy or the time to do much with it. So I wrote a little about each one, put it in a drawer, and then the pandemic came along and lo and behold, I had a lot of time. So it turned out to be a great way to pass the time in the pandemic. And my wife, Nancy of 57 years is a great editor. And so we spent a lot of time together and um, each chapter, there were about six drafts and I'd bring my draft to her and she'd shake her head and say, not quite. And one by one, uh, there was the book. And it felt like a wonderful culmination of my career to share with other clinicians things that I thought were of value that I had learned in my career. Yeah, something you, you shared with me when we were talking earlier was a comment your wife made when you were working on it that she was saying it's, it's actually kind of a, a work, it's like a professional memoir. Well, I thought that was an astute comment because one thing that's guided my professional life is a comment that Elvin Semrad, who was one of my teachers at the Mass Mental Health Center, said to us on our first day in July of 1968, said the one thing that you all have that no one else has is your experience as you've experienced it. You might not have elected it. You might even think it stinks, but it's yours, so value it and use it. So along with supervisors, teachers, theory that I read, mentors, colleagues, and things I learned from my patients, as time went on, I got more confident in using my own personal experience things that I distilled from my life that I felt were important. And I found that patients responded to them, those things, um, as well as people I supervised. And so today I hope to share some of those personal experiences and encourage anybody who reads uh, about this interview to value your experience because no one has had your experience the way you've experienced it. Yeah. So this might be a place to uh, disclose to listeners that I've had the privilege of being in one of your supervision groups and probably one of those people who's benefited from your wisdom and, and guidance and from this approach that you take to include yourself in the process. I'm wondering if you would say something to listeners about what you mean by that in terms of the more traditional idea of therapy, where there's a, a very silent authority figure who's there to listen and diagnose versus you're talking about, we are real people in the process of working with another individual. Well, let me give you an example. So um, when I was maybe 41 or two, my family and I went to visit my parents in Rochester, New York. And at that time, my father was 90. 
and he was a middleman in the fruit business. And um, one of the things he loved in life was to put a deal over on somebody and get the better of the other guy. So he said to me, uh, Jerry, would you like to go get some sweet corn? So I said, sure. So now that uh, I was over 40, he was finally letting me drive. And we drove over to this fruit stand uh, where they let you shuck the corn and bag it. So we decided we'd get a dozen for my wife and I, a dozen for my parents, and six for Aunt Julia. So uh, he said, you shuck them, I'll bag them. So I shuck, you know, 12, 12 more, six. And I say, okay, that's it. And he takes three more and shoves them into the bag. So we go through the line and the little gal behind the line says, uh, old timer, how many uh, corn do you have? He says, two and a half dozen. So we pay for the corn and we get out in the car. And I said, um, why did you rip them off for uh, three corn? He said, I did not. I said, yes, you did. He said, I did not. I said, remember, I was shucking them. I knew how many I shucked. He said, I did not. So I, I uh, <laughs> pursued. And I said, yes, you did. Why did you do that? He said, they're overpriced. I said, well, why don't you shop somewhere else? He said, they have the best corn. So when you have an experience like that, it gives you a lifetime to sort out some stuff for yourself. And I was indebted to my father for that experience because I wasn't a stranger to some corrupt impulses in myself. And around this time just happened that I had a new patient a fellow in his 30s, and we started in March. And I saw him four times in March, and then four times in April. And at the beginning of April, he said to me, Dr. Gans, um, I'm on my wife's insurance, which doesn't go into effect until April 1st. So I wonder if you could bill the first eight sessions in, in April. So I thought to myself, what a delicious request. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there was some impulse in me that felt like saying, how dare you uh, make a proposal like that to an upstanding person like me, uh, which I knew wouldn't be therapeutic. So I tried to find out how he came about making a request like that. And, um, Turns out his father was a physician who was illegally writing prescriptions for his drug addicted brother. And also his father came to learn that a secretary over a five year period had embezzled $30,000 from office funds. So corruptness was embedded in his family. So we got to the end of the session and he, asked, he went back to that request and asked me about it. And so having had a, metab a chance to metabolize a lot of my thoughts and feelings, I said to him dispassionately, how could you win with a request like that? And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, if I do what you say, you'll have a corrupt therapist 
And if I don't, you'll probably be annoyed with me. He thought about it, shook his head. He said, I guess you're right. So that's an example of using my own experience for therapeutic purposes, um, metabolizing countertransference and doing it in a way that holds boundaries but doesn't shame the person, um, which I think was achieved in that interaction. So your story illustrates the example you're trying to make, but also is a nice illustration of sort of what is your gift and what you do in the book. That was a really nice, you're very concise, clear and direct, and you share vignette after vignette of how you've approached different challenges, which that's the book, Assessing the Challenges of Psychotherapy. But something that I think is worth talking about is that the therapist needs to be aware of their own experience and how it's influencing them. And there's this, I just want you to say a little more about your metabolizing your own reactions and coming up with a thoughtful response. Um, Well, I thought you were going to ask a slightly different question. And why do I assume that my experience will generalize to other people? I thought of that. (laughs) and, and, And I don't, but yet, Maybe it's hubris, maybe it's narcissism, but I I have confidence that things that I've experienced are not foreign to other people at some basic level. Um, Which brings up another point about the therapeutic encounter. A new patient walks in and each party has projections that I have an idea who the patient is And I have to fight through that over time to get to who the real patient is. And the patient comes in with all kinds of projections onto me, which I somehow have to sidestep so that, or deal with in a certain way so that over time, the patient gets a better idea of who I am. And so that at the end of therapy, we're just two people and all of those projections have been stripped away, or most of them. And doing that takes a lot of hard work and therapy. And it's just as much the therapist's job to do that as the patient's. Mm-hmm. So when you're supervising people, um, how do you encourage or support that? I mean, my experience is you have a lot of teaching stories. Do you think that's sort of a key approach? Um, Well, again, I don't know if this is answering it directly, but when I supervise people, what I'm interested in is the thought that goes into what they finally decide to say. I might offer alternative things that they might have said but I'm trying to be mindful of the fact that they're there with the patient, I'm not. So I want to be very respectful of all the things that might be going on in the therapy that I don't really know about. So um, I wanna honor what they say, um, unless I feel it's really hurtful 
and then I'll try to talk to them about it. Um, and sometimes if the material they're sharing reminds me of a story that I think will be helpful, um, I tell the story. And one reason for that is stories provide an object of displacement where you can say things about the story that might be harder to say to the supervisee directly. And so it adds a playful, um, less vulnerable format. Hearing you say that makes me think of one of the things that as a therapist, we often do for, for the people we're working with is try to normalize their experience. If someone comes in and they're really beating themselves up over some mistake they've made, it can be helpful for them to hear that, oh, you know, many, many people, you know, we normalize many people struggle with that. I, I like that. And I, I think it's great when you have a story because it makes it sound like my story, my situation isn't this unique dilemma. It's something that, you know, is, can be talked about and, and shared. Right. And with the right person, whether it's patient or supervisee, that might be helpful uh, because they need that kind of affirmation. Other people might feel so shamed that they feel you're not getting it. So while the intent is to be helpful, they might not experience it as empathic. So um, one example that comes to mind, um, I remember, I, the only thing I remember about this person was um, he had a lot of shame and, and he was telling me that uh, one of the things he was shamed of was that he picked his nose and ate the snot. And I, I could see him getting ready for a comment that would be withering from me. And um, so I thought about it and I thought, well, maybe um, he feels that eating something of his own body is increasing his immunity. So I said, oh, you mean like a booster shot? He said, yeah, exactly. And he kind of perked up. So um, with some people that might be more effective than saying, well, a lot of people pick their nose and eat it, you know? So it, it depends on the person and your knowledge of them. Right, right. <clears throat> so it's interesting because that again is sort of a, what you talk about in the book is that you have sort of these, what you feel are sort of your pearls of wisdom that you've gained from all those, just say 80,000 hours. Like that's a lot of experience. And that, that right there is one of the pearls of wisdom that sometimes we, a therapist might say something like, okay, I'll just normalize this, but you're right. You, do you really want to normalize something that's unusual? You know, that's a sort of, I think that's a piece of wisdom to say like, you know, the therapist needs to slow down and as you say, metabolize their own, all the different possible answers they could have and then try to choose a thoughtful one. I mean, that's right. really challenging, right? Yeah, one thing that's helped me in my career, especially with sicker people is 
um, an article that Leston Havens, H-A-V-E-N-S, wrote in the 1970s about the um, existential school of psychiatry. And this is a school of thought that says, first of all, there's no truth. Secondly, um, there's no doctor and patient, even though the patient is paying you. Um, and that um, you're not smarter than the patient. You don't have all the answers. And that questions aren't helpful because questions get people up in their head. So, so the methodology in the existential school of psychiatry is, try, is to try to approximate staying and being with where the patient's at, knowing that you can never be exactly where the patient's at. Um, and to make statements that capture as much as you can what you think the patient is feeling. So here's an example. So I was treating this Southern gentleman doctor from the South. And um, guy had a very strong conscience, very strong superego. And he happened to tell me that his birthday was on December 23rd. And on his birthday, his mother would hire a bus take all the kids at the party on the bus, go to a poor section of town and distribute his gifts to poor children. And up to this point, this man thought that he had just this ideal family. And we dug, as we dug deeper into this story and others like it, he saw how hurtful some of these things were. And um, so as he was telling that story, and I was listening to it, um, I realized, you know, I just didn't feel well. And when he got all done, I said, it's enough to make one sick to their stomach. And the guy just started bawling. You know, there were no questions, just trying to stay with the story and where I thought it led emotionally. And that, that, theory freed me up from feeling I had to be smart, that I had to be right. No, I just had to try to stay with where the person was at. And that was a helpful um, point of view that I integrated into how I practice. And again, as sort of someone who's been, I guess you call a student of yours, one of the things that helps me take that approach to just trying to stay present and and try to imagine and sense into what the other person's feeling is being part of like a group supervision where you're re there's for you because my question was was going to be well how does a person do that i mean we we live in our own bodies and as you said we're so influenced by our own we've had our own experiences that it, <clears throat> it requires you know what your own experience has been, and that you're able to imagine that another person's having a different experience. Um, I don't know if this is directly addresses what you just said, but um, something happened in our supervision yesterday that I've been thinking of. So a very capable, able 
clinician was presenting a case um, and it involved two sisters and the younger sister feeling she was less than the older sister. And um, the person presenting the case on, on, on several occasions talked about challenging the sister on the fact that she felt less than because the therapist thought very highly of the sister and sort of challenged some of these beliefs. And there was something about the word challenge that I wanted to deal with, and I'm not sure that I dealt with it well, and I hope in the next supervision I can ask her. And so then one other person in the supervision group who had pointed out that this poor woman patient only seemed to have two options in life. Either she was better than or worse than and nothing in between. And, and I said to her, and this would be an example of indirect communication. I said to her, what would be an empathic way of putting the dilemma that you see uh, the patient being in? Because I wanted the person presenting the case to hear a more empathic response rather than a challenge coming from her peer rather than from me. Now, whether I achieved that or whether she felt judged um, by my saying, gee, there's a better, might be a better way to do this. Um, anyway, that's fresh from yesterday. No, that does, that does answer the question because I think it goes back to maybe your, your what I perceive as one of your motivations for writing this book and sharing these sort of pearls of wisdom. It's a really hard job that we do and we do it on our own. You know, it's not a team approach. And I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, having people like yourself with a lot of experience that's willing to meet with people and help them process and reflect on how they're doing. And, and, and that's in fact, what the supervision's about. Everyone has a chance to say, this is what a case I'm working on and I'm, I'm wondering what I'm missing or I'm wondering, you know, and, and I think that's so, that's so important. And I think for me reading your book, um, in fact, I, I, I told, I was telling you, like, I'm, I find myself going very slowly. It's very dense. There's a lot of meaning in here and a lot of not like directive, but a lot of guidance. And well, it's, it's an art, it speaks to sort of like, there's an art to therapy, right? Yes. And maybe this answers a question you asked before about supervision is, I, I think what supervisees often want isn't your intelligence, but to share some of your experience and including stories where you screwed up because uh, we all do. It's so complex, so complex that you can't do this work without making some mistakes. And often the repairing of those mistakes, if that's possible, can be very therapeutic because often people don't have experience with people in authority owning their mistakes and um, talking about it. Um, 
I'm, I'm just, I'm imagining someone listening to this and thinking, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what? My therapist said something to me I didn't like, or I don't, I think that was a mistake. What would you say to, you know, a patient that maybe has had that experience? Well, what, what I say to them in my treatment of them periodically, because this is one of the major things I learned about psychotherapy in my psychiatric residency, could I be unwittingly inhibiting the very therapeutic enterprise I'm trying to advance? So, so, so from time to time, especially if somebody's talking about someone else who's hurt them, I'm, I'm wondering if I've hurt them and they haven't felt free to tell me. So I'm trying to enlarge the space, whether it's in supervision or therapy, that people can bring more of themselves in and feel free to say whatever they need to say. Um, yeah. yeah, I've been thinking ahead of time about some of the things to ask you about. And so that response makes me think of like therapeutic outcomes. Like, so would you say that's like one of the hopes of, of the therapy that someone would, that's what you're trying to provide is an opportunity for someone to bring more of themselves? Yes, definitely. Um, and by and and by more of themselves, I mean their thoughts, their feelings, things they're ashamed of, their fantasies. Fantasies are some of the hardest things for people to talk about because we might do things in our fantasies that we wouldn't do in reality. Um, one's associations, um, so that and 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 one's imagination. I think, I think patients get a subliminal message from therapists about how much therapists value imagination as opposed to being caught up in, in uh, re reality. So, so for example, if a patient comes late and explains to me there was a lot of traffic, I have no reason to doubt that, you know, unless it's recurrent. Um, but I'm interested in, well, what was it like to realize you were going to miss some therapy time? Um, do they feel a loss? Do they feel angry that they're getting treated out of time? Are they indifferent? Um, another example about the, that I think is in the book about imagination is back in the 1980s, um, one of my uncles who happened to be the most prosperous one in the family died. And he had a Cadillac. And um, I was his favorite nephew. So he left this Cadillac to me. Actually, his wife sold it to me. I think he would have preferred to leave it to me. So I have a home office. So there's the Cadillac sitting in my driveway, which I'm feeling a little ashamed of myself. So the first week patients come in and they say, um, oh, and so my uncle lived in Rochester and I live in Massachusetts. So they saw the foreign plates and they said, oh, that's nice. You have company. Second week they come in and they say, um, yeah, they're staying kind of long, aren't they? 
by the third week, they get the idea that maybe it's now my car. So somebody says, uh, gee, I never thought you were a capitalist pig, but you know, maybe you are. And, um, and then they wanted to know, is it my car? Where did I get it from? Did I have a favorite uncle? So on, and I kept asking for their imagination. And, um, you know, they, they thought, well, you haven't raised your group fees in a long time. Maybe you don't need the money. Or, you know, you're very wealthy anyway. And they had all of these fantasies about me. And then, um, then it, it led to the fact that um, there was a disparity in incomes in the group that the group had never talked about. And then one guy who was quite wealthy in the group, and I had no idea of it, uh, talked about how he was inhibited from talking because when he heard everybody else's problems, he felt his were trivial. You know, so not answering those questions, but inviting their imagination in led to some very the um, therapeutic conversations. One other thing occurs to me about answering questions or not answering them. I mentioned how not answering them could be very useful when trying to encourage people to imagine. But life, life and therapy are complex and there are times when it isn't a good idea not to answer a question. Some patients need answers. A woman, a high-functioning woman said to me, Dr. Gans, I don't know what your goals are in not answering my questions, but when you do that, I feel very disrespected and I shut down. So having been supervised by her, I decided to start answering her questions. Looking back, I think I was concerned that if I answered her questions, everyone else in the group would want their questions answered. That never happened. They seemed to appreciate better than I did that this particular woman needed her questions answered. And when I began answering them, we were rewarded with a patient who did the very kind of psychotherapeutic work I had hoped she would do by my not answering her questions. So um, who is the patient? What's the phase of therapy? What's the counter-transference, transference configuration? Um, all of those things go into the therapist's um, deciding whether for this particular patient at this time, whether it would be a good or not a good idea to answer the question. So for someone who doesn't have experience, the firsthand experience of what makes that therapeutic, what, what, what's helpful about people feeling freer to share their fantasies? What's helpful about people being more self-aware of their own imagination? One important thing I think is if the therapist feels impelled to answer, the message might be given that my answers and what I have to offer are more important than your internal productions. 
It's a subtle thing, but it could be a powerful communication. I'm the one that's got the important contributions here. Whereas whatever it is, I, I, I want to, and, and sometimes the more trivial, the better. Um, I, I remember when, when I was a liaison psychiatrist in a cardiac unit, I used to interview patients with their permission in front of the nurses. These were very sick people. And one day I said to the nurses, if someone's taking notes on this interview, make two columns. In one column, have the substantive points that you think the patient is telling about. And in the other, write down the throwaway lines. You know, the, the things that people say that just seem like asides. And then we'll go over the two lists. And almost every time, some of the throwaway lines were more, if one investigated them, were paths to learning more about the patient than the so-called content. I, I remember once interviewing a woman with MS in front of a large group. And I, I don't think she, she was recruited to be interviewed. I didn't recruit her, but I don't think she wanted to be there. And so it was like pulling teeth. And, and at one point, a button popped off my sport jacket, fell to the ground, and she said, oh, your wife will sew it on. And, you know, when, when we got into that, we learned more about her than any other thing from the interview. So nothing's too trivial. Um, and to be alert for meanings that things like that could have. That's so interesting. So I'm, I'm just listening to that story. And one of the stories I really liked from your book um, is the story of a, maybe it, I think it was a psych, psychiatry resident who was supposed to interview a patient um, in a group situation. I think it was for an exam. Yeah, his, um, what was it for? Oh, to, to pass his uh, psychiatry board exam. The, okay. so, so it was a big deal. A really big deal. And it was, I mean, when you said the MS patient, you didn't, you weren't sure how willing that person was. I think in this situation, it was the poor patient was there for the, was going to do the fourth round of having somebody, you know, interview them and ask them all the questions. Do you want to tell the, the end of that story or how that went? Yeah. So this, this was an MD, PhD, obviously very bright, very well prepared. And it was the first interview in the afternoon, and his task was to interview a schizophrenic patient, and it was going to be an hour. And the, the patient had been interviewed four times in the morning. And who knows what kind of material was brought up. But it very soon became obvious that the patient had had it and wasn't going to talk with the candidate. So the candidate started walking around the room and talking to the room. And what he talked about was the feelings in him that were getting stirred up by what was happening. And he started to say, you know, um, I'm, I'm here to interview this person and it's clear he's not gonna talk to me. And I feel very upset and disappointed because this is a big day in my life. I've studied hard for it. You know, on 
on on the other hand, he's you know a very fragile person, and he's the kind of person I'm going into this field to try to help, and um, and yet on the other hand, I don't want to infantilize him because he's being paid for this. Nobody made him do it, and um, I want to expect him to be accountable and responsible. And he kept going on like that, finding anything to talk about at the cutting edge of his counter-transference. And I'm, I'm sitting there in amazement watching this. And the time really went by pretty quickly. And then it got to be with five minutes left. And I said, five minutes. He talked for a little more. And as the session was ending, the patient who seemed like he was in his own world said, good luck to the candidate. And you know, you could interpret that, that good luck many ways, but from the sound of it, the impact it had on me, um, and the fact that the candidate had treated him so respectfully, um, I thought the guy, the patient really meant it. And the respect that he showed for this person, that inside that person, there was a human being who was sentient. Um, I, I learned from that about indirect communication, which I wrote a paper on, a couple of papers. Um, when speaking directly to people in some situations is not going to be useful and might even be counterproductive. And why talking to the room and not even looking at the person is helpful. And often we're taught that eye contact is an unmitigated good, but in some instances, eye contact is not helpful. Yeah. Yeah. I think that I love that story because first of all, I was amazed too. I was like, I was trying to think what would I have done in a situation like that? Um, and it could have, he, his efforts could have easily agitated the patient further and been really, really difficult. But what I just, connected when you when you just said that is that it was almost the indirect expression of what he was thinking himself it was done so thoughtfully is similar to telling a story rather yeah. than directly tell right it's yeah sort of an object of displacement yeah yeah so fascinating um so i'm just sort of watching the time and we have a little more time left but i wanted to ask you just in general because I know that, you know, in as part of your intention is to share what you know, what you've learned over all these years about human nature. And I just wondered if there were any other kind of like key things you wanted to share about, you know, it's sort of like, well, I just have to say the book is so full of insights into human nature, that whole thing about whether you look someone in the eye or not, like sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. I don't know, maybe maybe you, you would like to talk about omissions. I mean, it's another piece of human nature that I think, you know, you bring a lot of insight into that, but just in general, like, what do you think you, 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 you know, now at the end of your career that, you know, you wish you'd known sooner. Um, that you can learn from every person, important things and things about yourself. And that, Nothing is too basic to learn from. For example, when I was a first year resident, 
we all were assigned one patient at Boston State Hospital, which is the end of the line for mental patients. And I was assigned this woman who was a simple schizophrenic, very impaired. And, and one day she asked me a question that took my breath away. She said, Dr. Gans, how, how do I know when I'm done wiping off the table? And I thought, wow, never occurred to me that someone could ask a question like that. And it, it, as the years have gone on, uh, how does one know when we are done with anything? How do you know when you're done with therapy? How do you know when you're done processing something with your wife? <laughs> um, you know, there, there are just so many things you can learn from. Um, I, I think the ubiquity and importance of projection is very important. People project all over the place. They tend to believe their projections and it's good to be aware of that. Um, and, and omissions. Um, there's so many ways we protect our self-esteem. We catch a three pound fish, we say it was a six pound fish. We, um, you know, what else do we do? We um, pride ourselves on the things we have or how much we've earned or our reputation. Um, if someone's disclosing a failure, failure they had, the experience that you also experienced and you don't say anything, you just. Right. Um, and another thing we protect ourselves from maybe what you just said, is through omissions. So we leave out things that we think wouldn't reflect well on us. So I, I have one part in the book about a woman in a group who um, the group knew from other stories had very um, poor judgment in selecting men. And she also came from a very critical family. So she started telling the group about a new man and the group trying to be as unlike her family as they could be, were very accepting and approving of what she was telling of this new guy. And, you know, in many ways he did, he did sound admirable. So I said to her, tell us one thing about your boyfriend that you wouldn't want us to know. In other words, something she had left out. And that question turned out to be very productive because we got a chance to look at why would she leave it out? Why did she think what she was going to tell us was an imperfection? Why did she think we'd be critical? Does she think people are perfect? You know, a whole bunch of things came up. And it turned out the group wasn't critical but they had one concern, which was this fellow was accepted to a very good college far away from home, and he decided to go to one closer to home, even though it wasn't a financial reason. And the reason was that his mother had developed MS when he was a freshman in high school, and he wanted to be closer to home. And the concern I had and the group had, and even the woman had herself was, was this fellow going to be able to separate from his mother? 
And she learned a lot that um, it was her own projection that the group was going to be critical and they weren't. And now she got an experience talking over things with group and not having to hide things and having confidence that the group would be unlike her family and would be there to help, not to criticize. So, or, you know, if a patient calls up to cancel a session, think of what you go through when you're canceling an appointment. You know, am I sick enough? What are they going to think of me? All these things that are worth exploring, you know, gee, what was it like last week when you canceled that appointment? You know, we might not go into that. What about if a part of the process of becoming more aware of the projections involves a patient asking you something directly? Right. So let's say I'm seeing a young woman um, who's come from a family where she's had a very fragile mother. And in this particular session, she says, she says something critical about me and about the therapy. And then as we get near the end of the therapy, she says, do you love me? And this is something she's asked several times in the year I knew her. Um, how, how am I going to answer that? And there's a, there's a, there's a wonderful book by Martha Stark about, is it called Mechanisms of Cure or of Help? And she goes and discusses the difference between a one person, a one and a half person, and a two person therapy. The one person therapy is classic analytic, where the analyst is really outside of the therapeutic field studying the pathology in the patient. So the therapist is really smart and, and the psychopathology is with the, in the patient, some imbalance between id, ego, and superego um, that through interpretations, the patient's gonna get insight. A one and a half um, person therapy is where the therapist is being aware, very aware of his or her feelings created by the patient and is using those feelings to repair deficits that the patient has because the patient came from a family that didn't provide needed containment, nourishment, guidance. So the patient's a subject and the therapist is a half of a subject using his or her feelings to be empathic. And a full two-person therapy where you have two subjects, the patient, uh, the therapist will use his counter-transference for patients, not where the patient's family has not done good, absence of good, but have done bad. So the, the patient has internalized that badness. Those introjects live on in the patient, which then get projected on the therapist. And the, therap and the patient elicits all kinds of stuff from the therapist. 
And the therapist uses that material to look at the patient's interpersonal difficulties. So the therapist is a subject along with the patient. And um, so based on which of those models you are using and where you think drawing from which model would be helpful to the patient, then your answer would depend on which model you were coming from, which is another way of saying the more possibilities you have in your mind of how to respond, the more likely you are to come up with a therapeutic comment. Right. Yeah. And kind of going back again to the patient that picked his nose, like normalizing isn't that that might occur to you, but you know, not the, you know, there's an approach, which again, goes back to sort of saying that there's an art to, to therapy, to doing therapy and into doing it well. And you have to, as you said earlier, you have to keep learning and you have to keep, you have to be open to continued learning and continually checking with colleagues and, and, you have to remember how vulnerable you are to an oversight or your own omission or whatever. Um, hearing you though, I, I do want to like, if somebody, if I were listening to this, I might think to myself, how do I, what are some good ways? What are some good indications that that therapists would be like that? Is there terminology? I mean, how would it, it you know, often people say to me like, well, do I want a CBT therapist? Like what kind of a, how does someone find someone that you think kind of has these, I think they, they're sort of more advanced skills. What would be a good way to find them? Um, well, I, I'll answer this a little indirectly. I think therapists gravitate to theoretic models that they feel comfortable with. Um, I, I would say to patients, trust your gut. Um, you'll know, hopefully, maybe not everybody, but you'll know what feels right, what feels respectful. Um, you know, I remember a patient who wasn't very educated, but he was very smart, said to me in the sixth session, Dr. Gans, I'm starting to appreciate all the thought that goes into you're not saying that much. <laughs> Here I knew this guy, that, that we had a good fit. Um, some people who are just coming in for advice and it's relentless, uh, maybe they need somebody who's better at giving advice. Um, yeah, that's so interesting. I just had a flashback to, you know, in my 20s in therapy and going in with this dilemma and just telling the whole story of the dilemma and my therapist just saying like, gee, like, what do you think you're going to do? And just feeling like, well, what are you asking me that for? I don't know what I'm going to do. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to bring it to you and you're going to tell me what to do. And leaving there thinking, oh, wow, that wasn't helpful. <laughs> Only to later realize that, you know, that she was encouraging me to just like, well, you just couldn't think about it. And she was modeling, a, you know, a calm, accepting response. And she was indicating some faith in me rather than just giving me telling me, telling me what to do. But I remember my youth being like, well, how's that helpful? You know, like, why are you saying nothing? Say something. Right. But you were self-reflective enough over time to appreciate her approach where someone else might've concluded, well, 
I thought she was going to fix me and she's not. I'm going to find somebody who will fix me. Right. right. And of course, at that point, I didn't have as much insight into myself to go back like the next week and say, why didn't you, why didn't you tell me what, you know, I didn't do that. Cause I was, you know, preoccupied with just being grateful for whatever help I was getting that kind of, that kind of thing. But yeah, it's so much, so much to think about. Um, well, before we, we sort of wrap things up, I want to give you sort of the last word and let you just share with people, whatever final thoughts you have. But I, I do want to say this, this book is not a big, huge, thick book, but it is so full of stories that you've like you've shared today and I've really really powerful I mean I've read Yalom's books and I, I love books that give you a little peek into therapy and and what the thoughts are behind what what someone's saying and, and what might make it therapeutic so I just wanted to really say that it's um been a very meaningful read for me um, and then want to turn it over to you and see if there's anything else you do want to share with people. Well, I think the last thing I want to say is, so you look at your appointment book and you see Henry's on your schedule. And Henry is your most difficult patient and you're not looking forward to the session. And you look outside and it's raining and it's gray. Take a minute to say to yourself, I'm so lucky to have chosen a profession where I have the privilege of people coming in and talking about intimate things that maybe no one else will ever hear. And I have the opportunity to keep learning about myself as well and have gratitude that you have such a profession. Yeah. Yeah, that's... That's really powerful. And I appreciate you saying that today and sharing that wisdom with, with so many people. Really, really important message. Well, thank you. The, the questions you asked made it easy for me to respond. <clears throat> this was a lot, of, a lot of fun today. Thank you, Jerry. Okay, thank you.